Well, here in Job 31, we've got Job really finally clearing himself against all the uh, 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 implications that have been made against him. You remember how the friends are so convicted that he has sinned uh, because he's suffering, and therefore they start speculating about all manner of sin that they reckon he might have committed. And he, he answers this here. And, of course, what he's basically saying is, I did not do all these, if you like, major sins that you've, you've implied that I have done. <clears throat> and we're going to see, however, that he is really convicted later on when the Lord himself speaks out of the whirlwind. He is convicted of the seriousness of his position before God because he was, all the same, a sinner. And in this sense, this ancient book speaks to us in the 21st century because the vast majority of us would be, I think, in Job's position. We would be saying, look, I do not uh, commit the, the major sin which is going on in the world and society around me, the things he talks about here, sexual sin, um, <clears throat> idolatry, abuse of the poor, etc., etc. I do not do those things. And we're going to see how he kind of looks at his sinfulness, he recognizes of course that he's not absolutely squeaky clean then he sort of brushes that off a bit and that is so much the position that so many of us maybe subconsciously can be in and it's because we are as yet unconvicted of the extent and urgency of our sin and failure before God that we therefore miss so much we miss that sense of elation, of joy of ecstatic uh, uh, joy and peace from knowing that sin is forgiven and rejoicing it in the hope that I, as a, a hopeless sinner, am really going to be saved by God's grace. We lack, therefore, that stimulus to be gracious uh, and outgoing to others because we have not been convicted of the seriousness of our own sin. So then, let's... Uh, having stated the uh, conclusion that I'm coming to, let's now go through the chapter... Um, first of all, what he deals with this thing about sexual sin, and he starts off verse 1, says, look, I made a covenant with my eyes, why then should I think even upon a, a young woman? I think that's picked up by the Lord Jesus when he talks about looking upon a woman uh, is the same as doing it. Although as a clever friend of mine said, I don't agree with what the Bible says there. It's not the same at all, I can tell you from a lot of experience, but anyway, that's... Uh, inappropriate levity perhaps on my part but um, anyway but my point is that he, Jesus is clearly quoting and alluding to that when he, Job says I made a covenant with my eyes so therefore why then should I look upon uh, a woman uh, with lust he means because verse 4 does not he see my ways and count all my steps so then the basic truth of the fact that God sees and knows all things, this has a huge meaning in practice. It's so easy to chop that out in the sort of spirit of uh, Sunday school Christianity that God sees and knows all things. Well, yes, if he does, then you will not even consider, in this context, Job says, looking upon a, a woman lustfully. If he really sees and knows all things, in fact, all sin, including mental sin, is absolutely inappropriate, and you just won't do it. Now, Job, I think, speaks here with honesty and with integrity. He so believed in God's viewing of his life that to him, of course, he says, it's unthinkable for me that I should, uh, I, I should even think lustfully about a woman. 
And it reminds us a bit of what Joseph says when Potiphar's wife approaches him. He basically says to her, I can't even consider it. How can I sin like this before God? And that's Genesis 39 verse 9. And I think that that is a window into the way that the Lord Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, but did not sin. It's not that his knuckles, as it were, were white with uh, tensing himself to somehow hold himself back from the sort of sins that we sadly commit. I think that his thinking was on an altogether higher level. And Job and Joseph, in this context of sexual sin, I think approached uh, that, in that for them this sort of thing was just unthinkable. Now, sadly, for many of us, such sin is not at all unthinkable. But for them, it was just unthinkable, because, as Job says, God sees what I'm thinking. Now, of course, there were other issues that for Jesus really were temptations and were very difficult for him. And so I think that as we grow spiritually, our dealing with temptation is not in terms of, as I say, our knuckles going white as we tense ourselves just not to do it. I think that you evolve spiritually to a, a way of thinking and to a circle of, uh, of being and, and, uh, and just thinking within you, whereby certain sins and, and temptations and stuff that are, are just unthinkable. And I think that is the mark of spiritual maturity, that things that we had to, as I say, tense our fists against doing with, with our knuckles going white with the, uh, the, the tension just uh, that doesn't happen so much. You simply uh, are in a different sphere of thinking, whereby, yes, on paper those issues are temptations, but in reality they are not, because that is not for us, and that's not for me. It's rather like if you offered me a syringe with heroin in it. Well, I would just run away. I, I, I just don't want to be around you if that's what you do and if that's what you're thinking. But for some other guy who's struggled with that sort of thing all his life or for years, that's a major temptation. And I think, as I say, the mark of spiritual development is that those kind of items become more and more uh, in our lives, more and more issues are no longer uh, dealt with by us by trying to get some steel within the human will or some iron in the soul that is somehow strong enough to resist it, but simply by thinking in a different way. So then he talks then in verse 7, If my step has turned out of the way and my heart walked after my eyes, and if any blot has cleaved to my hands, then let me sow and let another eat. I think the emphasis is on the word cleaved, because he is not actually claiming that he is without sin of any type. Why I say that is because if you go on to 33 and 34, he says, If I covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, did I fear a great multitude, or did the contempt of families terrify me that I kept silence and went not out of the door? What he's saying in 33 and 34 is that, sure, I have got transgressions and iniquity, but I did not hide them. And I was not frightened of what the great multitude would think of me, or families, the contempt of families. I mean that he lived in, in a social situation 
uh, where people were organised uh, according to their families and where it was a terribly shame-based society. And if you did something wrong, you really could not, as he says, go out of your door for shame. And he says, well, I didn't have that. If I did something wrong, I did not hide it, as Adam did. And I didn't fear being despised and shamed. He rose above the shame-based society in which he lived. What, I, what he's saying is, look, when I sinned, I, I admitted it. I confessed it, and I, I didn't try to hide it, and I wasn't uh, so bound by a shame-based society that I couldn't admit it. What he's saying in verse 7, though, is that the blots didn't cleave to my hands. They were blots, sure, but I repented of them, got rid of them. They didn't remain on me. Now, on one hand, this is a good example to us, because the more real, the more credible. Uh, that is really true in, in preaching work and all kind of pastoral care for people. Uh, the knight in shining armour, spiritually, you know, the perfect pastor with the, uh, the, the uh, perfectly turned out two children and, uh, and lovely wife, etc. I mean, this is all an urban myth. Um, and then, you know, everyone's supposedly surprised when the guys uh, rumbled for all kind of serious misbehavior. You know, this is an urban myth. It, it, it's far more the, uh, the people who are open about their weaknesses, who are the more compelling uh, pastoral figures and by far the more compelling preachers. And so there is no shame. There should be no shame that we take from the contempt of others because of our human failure. Because th the main thing is to be right with God. That's, that's the issue. Now, I think on the other hand, uh, Job is going to be taught when the Lord finally appears out of the whirlwind that, look, Job, you were minimizing sin. The friends weren't right when they said, ah, oh, Job says he's never sinned. I mean, he, he's not saying he never sinned. He's saying, I didn't do the big things that you're implying I did. But, of course, the point is that the distinction that Job seems to be making between big sins and little sins is not at all the point. Because, quote, just one sin results in death. That's the whole lesson of the, uh, the Garden of Eden. And the whole point is that he, he has to be convicted, as we have, have to be convicted, that our sin, which in the eyes of the, the world and society around us may not even be sin or may be virtually nothing, uh, is significant and is enough to keep us out of God's kingdom. And we must all the same throw ourselves upon God's grace, despite the fact that we have not committed maybe the, uh, the grosser sins which society makes such a, a huge issue about. Now, he talks in verses 13 and 14 about his attitude to the poor. He says that I did not despise the cause of my servants, because, verse 14, what then shall I do when God rises up, that is, in judgment against him, and when he visits in judgment, what shall I answer him? His point is that every encounter that he had with a needy person was, in a sense, a foretaste of him appearing at the day of judgment. And he says that I realized this right from the start. That's a profound thought. 
because you may think this only applies to rich people getting approached for money by poorer people, etc. But that, that's not a, actually what he's talking about here. When people come to you with their cause, and that is true of all of us, rich or poor doesn't make any difference, we are all in contact with people, and they come to us with their issues. And we are to respond to those issues. And how we respond to them is, or how we judge them, if you, if you like, is going to be reflected in how God responds to us. Because make no mistake about it, we are, to, we are going to come before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus begging desperately for his mercy, for his absolute undeserved mercy, forgiveness, grace and favour towards us. And we're going to really be begging him not to punish us as our iniquities deserve. Now, what Job is saying is that insofar as people came to him with their issues, he responded to them or tried to respond to them knowing that how he responded was related to how God is going to respond to him when, as he puts it, God rises up, that is in judgment, and when he visits in judgment. And so the, the encounters that we have with people in need, and as I say, let us not keep thinking that need is purely financial or material. The encounters that we have with people in need, and this is going on every day of your life, our response to that is playing out right now the essence of what's going to happen at the Day of Judgment. If we pretend we didn't see, we pretend we didn't notice, pretend we're busy with something else. Pretend that, well, look, no, 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 I, I, you know, it's your problem. You did this, that's, that's your problem. There's consequences for action, right? Well, you know, this is just consequence for your action, and that's it. Yeah, look, no. Because if that's how you want to carry on, well, that's, do you want God to behave like that to you at the Day of Judgment? Can you imagine you begging, as you will be, on your knees or probably flat on your face, begging the Lord for mercy, recognizing now your sin and your wastefulness of your talents of your life, and him saying, ah, oh, you know, no, look, I'm, no, no, look, I'm too busy. Or look, you know, didn't I, I did make it plain to you, didn't I? Um, yeah, look, no, look, no, don't come to me. Um, that was, you, the, the, this is just the consequence of your action, right? You know, don't you agree with that? I'm, I'm busy. I'm going off judge somebody else now. We don't want that. And he really understood this. And that's great, you know. Job just really great, you know, in how he lived his life. I think he lived such a good life that you can almost understand him kind of not really paying the attention that he should have done to, to the sins that he did commit and his sort of, uh, well, palming them off a little bit, saying, yeah, look, you know, I, I did confess them. Um, it's what I would call Sunday School Christianity. It's all too simplistic. Ah, oh, you do something wrong, are you? We just ask God to forgive you, and that's it, and play on. Well, yes, that is right. Uh, but if that's your attitude to, to sin and your failure, then you will never really get that huge wave breaking over you of wow, of marvel, of wonder at God's grace. And you will never find, therefore, the stimulus really to go out and be gracious and proactively uh, merciful to, to other people. Now, 
he goes on in uh, verse 33, and I'd like to just have quite a think about this verse 33. Uh, if I covered my transgression as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, da da da. When we looked at Zophar's speeches in Job 11 and Job 20, and there are MP3s on those two chapters, we observed that Zophar, in fact, like all of the friends, seem to accuse Job of being like Adam. They keep on saying this, directly and indirectly, and Job keeps denying it by implication, and here he specifically states, look, I am not as Adam. I didn't go hiding in the, in the trees of the garden. This idea of Adam is, I suppose, appropriate to a book that would appear to be one of the earliest uh, books in the, in the Bible in terms of its, uh, its language, its style, and what we can understand of how God was worshipped. And so allusions to early Genesis kind of would be uh, appropriate. So he's saying, I, I did not go hiding in the trees of the garden like Adam. Now, going back to Genesis, what happened? Adam sins, he hides in the trees, and then he hears the voice of the Lord God calling to him in what is poorly translated in nearly all the versions as the, the wind of the day or the cool of the day. And it's this word, ruach. Uh, this is uh, Genesis 3, verse 8. They heard the voice of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is what the uh, AV says. But it's this word, ruach. And it seems to me that God appeared to them in a strong wind. Uh, the cool of the day is a, an awful translation. It gives exactly the, the opposite impression. That there's this whirlwind ripping through Eden, and Adam and Eve are scared, and they run and run from tree to tree, trying to hide themselves in the forest from this huge wind. And out of the ruach, out of this wind, this whirlwind, the Lord God, verse 9 of Genesis 3, called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And then, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? Da, da. Now, later on in Job, in uh, chapter 38 God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind with basically the same questions where are you Job? who are you? what have you done? and in fact all through Elihu's speech Elihu says things like uh, can't you hear the whirlwind approaching? can't you hear the storm clouds? Uh, can't, you hear the, can't you see the storm clouds gathering? there was clearly throughout Elihu's final speech a huge uh, theophany approaching, a huge storm approaching. And then in uh, 38, God speaks to Job out of that whirlwind. Now, that is exactly, exactly the situation of Adam in Eden. And going through what God says to Job out of the whirlwind and all the allusions to the, uh, the animals, etc., this is very much alluding to God in Eden, talking to Adam. So then, Job was right that he had not committed all these gross sins that the friends implied he had. But he insists, I am not as Adam, hiding in the trees. And then God comes in the whirlwind. 
and fires the same questions to Job as he did to Adam, in essence. So then Job is being convicted that he is as Adam, that he is no better, that Adam really is as every man. And when you look at the Bible, almost on every page, I would suggest there is some level of allusion back to the sin of Adam and Eve in Eden. And the simple point is, they are every man and every woman. We look at the story of Adam and Eve and we think, are oh, you idiot, Adam, you utter moron, what do you do that for? And yet, the whole thing turns back powerfully upon us when you perceive all these illusions that you are the man. You are the Adam. That's who we are. And so Job had to come to this realization. And I think that is really the point of the book, that here is this undoubtedly righteous man who recognizes, of course, that he is not without blot, that he is not totally sinless, quite rightly denying that he has done all the grosser sins of society, etc., and without doubt living a very spiritual life. But he is missing one thing, and that was a recognition that the sins that he kind of palmed off as, well, yeah, okay, I did something a bit naughty, but that's an ideal, but I confessed it, and I didn't hide it, and I wasn't ashamed that people tut-tutted, and, well, you know, I got over it and went on, and, uh, you know, this sort of uh, pedestrian uh, sort of approach to spiritual life. In this he was so seriously wrong, or wouldn't say wrong, but he was lacking in understanding, and he had to be convicted of this. And so that is, I think, the path that we all go through, that God leads us to realize the eternal importance and consequence of the fact that we have sinned, the fact that on the standards of society, we have not sinned as some have, is neither here nor there. Unfortunately, we live in a society where increasingly sin is kind of uh, increasingly put on a, uh, on a kind of level, on a kind of scale. Uh, some guy gets life in prison for something or other, another guy gets a year in prison, another guy just gets a suspended sentence, another guy just gets a fine, another guy doesn't get anything because there was a lack of evidence or he had a clever lawyer. And we look on the internet, etc., you keep on, almost, well, you do, every single day. There's talk about other people's uh, major sin. And I think that we've got to be careful that we are not influenced by all this, to sort of think, well, isn't that awful? This fellow raped somebody, this fellow shot somebody, uh, this guy committed such a fraud of millions, uh, etc. And here I am in my little life, well, I don't do anything like that, I don't even get near it. And I think that therefore there is an us and them. And as I say, the, uh, the fact that court judgments from all over the world are splashed in front of our eyes on the internet uh, every day and on the media every day can lead us into this situation I think whereby we feel but that is them that's the sinful world and we all sort of gosh and gasp at how bad the latest atrocity is and tut tut and the rest of it and we're led by the media to do that but unless we are personally convicted of my sin then we just will miss the whole wonder of forgiveness, of grace, 
And we, as I say, will lack that stimulus, which there undoubtedly is from being convicted that you have really uh, been saved from your sin and the consequence has been lifted and you have been counted as in Christ, etc. And then you will have the motivation to go out there and to tell other people that same good news. Then you will have that necessary humility with which to approach people be they believers or unbelievers, baptized, unbaptized, whatever, to approach those people with a meaningful message, with kindness, with gentleness, with an appropriate uh, way that, that, that is persuasive, that is helpful to them. But you'll only get there, as I say. You'll only find that joy, real, simple joy, in being in Christ. If you are, first of all, convicted of your sinfulness and of your desperate need for God's grace. And so, as Job was, as I say, not relatively speaking a bad man, uh, but was led on this journey, that is exactly the same journey that you and I are being led on. And one of the uh, methods, I think, that God uses for this is the the weekly encounter between a believer and the crucified Christ. That is what the breaking of bread meeting should be all about. This is one reason for that meeting. This is one reason for continually bringing before us him there. And it is to convict us on a, a totally personal level of the seriousness of our sin, our desperation, and the answer for that desperation in Christ. That is why self-examination that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11 really doesn't or shouldn't need to be commanded. It is something that should naturally happen as we stand before him there. But there we are convicted. And yet there we also have the wonderful message of salvation in Christ.